0: Well, I am thrilled to invite you to open your copy of God's Perfect and Precious Word to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be looking at this morning Exodus chapter 20 from verse 22 down through chapter 24, verse 18. And we're going to have to summarize good bits of that section. But I'm going to read here in a moment just simply the uh, end of that section. It's, uh, we're not going to focus on it in the sermon time, and yet it is a powerful a uh, testimony of the glory and greatness of God. I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect word of our sovereign God. Exodus chapter 24, beginning in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction." So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this portion of your word. I thank you, Lord, for the way it teaches us how needy we are of your grace. I thank you, Lord, for the way it teaches us how we can live lives reflecting your love in this world. Oh, Lord, help us to love you and help our commitment to you shape Our willingness to love and serve others and help it to help us to understand how to live in this world. Oh Lord, may we as a body of believers be a light, a city on a hill, and we pray it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. May be seated we don't need a religion of law we need a religion of love you hear that sort of thing bandied about today and frankly it makes for a nice bumper sticker and if you don't think about it very much it it sounds good at first sight but it's very very superficial the idea that we pit The law of God against the love of God is problematic for many, many reasons. The truth is, it's the law of God that helps us understand the love of God. To the degree that we understand God's holiness and our sinfulness, to the degree we get that right and we never get it quite right enough, it's to the degree that when God says that in Christ He loves us, We are overwhelmed by that truth. To the degree that we shrink the holiness of God and elevate our own status is to the degree that when when, when we read that God loves us, it's not as earth-shattering in our soul. The law of God and the love of God are not to be pitted against one another. You show me a parent who is constantly permissive and exercises no authority and direction over their child and i'll show you a child that when the parent says i love you the kid is thinking of course you do and you don't do it good enough but you show me a home where a parent provides some clear biblical direction and creates boundaries and teaches them about their their own sin and loves them anyway you will have a parent who says i love you and love is intelligible in light of the reality of the law truth or boundaries you know the idea that we pit law against love is very dangerous but you know there's there's another way that doesn't just say do away with the law there there's a an idea that some people come to the faith and basically simply serve the law the the idea here though nobody would probably say it quite out loud is we don't need love we have the law so all of the focus is on the duties and responsibilities and one's confidence in their faith comes from the the fact that they do certain things you think here of the pharisees but 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 what i want you to see is usually those things are things that are manageable and so one gets its confidence from law-keeping as though this were a ladder climbing up to God. And so the focus is not on love, the focus is on law, but law in a corrupted sort of way. No matter whether or not the term grace is bandied about in those types of religious circles or sermons, in reality it's the law that is being held up as a path, often to earn salvation and to gain assurance. This turns the law into legalism. Understand that the law is not inherently legalism. The law is the law. It reflects the character of God. It reflects the purposes of God. But when we turn it into a ladder to climb to God, we've turned it into legalism, a system of attaining salvation, and that is to be rejected. Some of you have come out of religious situations like that and, and the tendency is to push away any sort of talk of the law and yet we know that between rejecting the law altogether as important and using the law as a ladder to climb to god we have some biblical territory that is faithful and true by the way satan is fine with either direction Satan is perfectly fine with you professing faith in Christ, but you say you have no need for the law of God or that you've outgrown the law of God. You've moved beyond the law of God. Or Satan is fine with you saying we need the law for salvation. We need the law so we know where we attain for assurance. He's fine with either because what gets left out in both is the actual biblical gospel. What gets left out in both is an actual reflection of the character of God. Both approaches are hyper-simplistic, man-centered, an assault on the character, holiness, and glory of God. You know, in civil, ancient civilizations at this time, it was most common to build a, a city... Uh, around a mountain because the thought was that, that the, you would go up the mountain and build things and you would work your way to God. It was, a, it was a symbol of getting to God. And yet, we have seen again and again in this study, and we'll see today, that this faith is all about God coming down to us. It's not about what we do to climb our way to God. It's about understanding that we can't. But this is what God has done for us and what God is doing for us. See, we've got to get this right. John Newton, the uh, uh, author of the uh, most beloved hymn in evangelicalism ever, Amazing Grace, he was a pastor and, and he wrote this letter to a friend. He said this, Ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most religious mistakes. This is the root of self-righteousness, the grand reason why the gospel of Christ is no more regarded, and the cause of that uncertainty and inconsistency in many. You see, if you're thinking about climbing a ladder to God, then you're always wondering if you've climbed high enough. If you think that you can do away with the law of God and be in right relationship with God, that's the very heart of self-righteousness. You see, the Bible teaches that, that when we see these ten words and ten commands, we understand that they were given to those. You remember what it said in 19, chapter 19, verse 4? I bore you on eagle's wings he says i brought you to myself he's speaking to a people whom he's redeemed in chapter 20 verse 2 which you saw last week he says i am the lord god who brought you out of the land of egypt out of the house of slavery i have done this therefore i say this to you you see the biblical pattern is that we are saved therefore we obey it's not that we obey so we can be saved. We have to get the order right. But when we are dele- delivered, when we are redeemed, when we are saved, we absolutely care about the law that reflects the character of God and reflects the pattern of how we should follow Him in this world. If there's one thing that's been clear in this study through Exodus, and it's the Uh, primary theme in the book of leviticus it's this god is holy god is not like us just a little bit better god is perfect he is holy he is absolutely righteous he is holy 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 to a perfect degree And when you and I understand ourselves, we know we are not naturally holy. We are sinners. And the testimony of the Bible is this story about this, how this holy God, this perfect God, this righteous God is at work in the world saving sinners like you and me. You see, the people whom God redeems as He speaks to don't suddenly forget the fact He's holy, In fact, the fact that he's holy is the reason he can be trusted. The fact that he's perfectly righteous is the reason why his promises can be trusted. And so when they hear the voice of God speak, they understand that they need a mediator. Even though they don't see God, in fact, it's going to tell us later that if you see God face to face in this sinful condition we're in, you die. They hear his voice his glory from the mountain. And it's, a, it's, a, it's as though they are so thankful that God is among them, but they understand the desperation of their situation and that they need a go-between, and God has raised that up. A covenant mediator, a man named Moses. Moses, through all the trials and tribulations to get him to lead the people, God has indeed raised him up. In fact, they say, don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses, you go speak to God and tell us what's going on. But even as clear as it is that God is holy, that we have a sense in which we tremble. Even as clear as that is this, that God is relentlessly committed to having His presence among His people. He's relentless. He's he's determined. And the law of God is all about teaching His redeemed people how to relate to Him. If I am a sinner and you are holy and you are making a way for me to be able to come to you, God, tell me the the boundaries of that way. Tell me the terms of that way. Tell me what I can do to acknowledge you as holy who you are as a holy God who is also my Redeemer. Teach me how to rightly relate to you. And Lord, if I understand how to rightly relate to you, I know that's going to have implications on how I relate to others, the other redeemed people, the people in the community of faith. And Lord, we are in a world. We are in a world where not everyone is redeemed. And so, Lord, we need to know when we understand who you are and what you've done and how to relate to you, and how we relate to one another, how we as a community relate to the world around us. That's what it's all about. Now, for those who are apart from Christ, it is holding up a standard to say, you need something outside of yourself because you can't meet the demands of this law. And then we are there to speak the word of the gospel And to say what you need, God Himself has provided. Let me tell you what that looks like in the life of Israel. Tell me, let me tell you what that looks like in my life. Moses, the recognized covenant mediator. The end of chapter twenty, it says uh, in verse twenty-one, it says Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Then we pick up in chapter twenty, verses twenty-two through twenty-six, and and this is a, um, a transitional verse that sort of frames what is to come. God's about to, to give a lot more instruction that is taking the foundational law of the ten words of the ten commandments, the prescriptive commands, and He's about to give the people an understanding of how to flesh that out in their context. How does that work out in daily life? These are not abstractions to be held at a distance from you. These are things to learn so you can live them out in daily life. And so in chapter 22 through 26, it sort of sets up the fact that he's going to do that. And it's about this. It's about living with God. You see, if you think about this section, and you think about not only the ten words, but but also the the case law and the commands that are given that are coming ahead. This is about God determined to have a relationship with His people and a people who are to be determined to love God. You understand how this works. The idea is not that these these laws, these, these rules, these commands are... Earning God's favor, it's the exact opposite. God has given His favor. So look at this, and this is how you can relate to Him. Now, it took Judy and I, when we got married, a few years to start to figure each other out a little bit. We still haven't figured each other out a lot. But we're working on it. We're better than we were. But what we need to try to do is to figure one another out. So one mistake that people make when they're first married is they know themselves, they know what they like, and so they assume that the other person is like that. Well, they're not. (laughs) And so you learning your partner, you learning what they like and what they don't like and trying to do that is not you earning a relationship with them. You already have it. It's because you want to express love for them. It's not performance it's the reality of relationship you know Judy grew up at a home with all women and you know Judy would hint at things and her mom would would sort of do them I don't do very well with hints so Judy would be upset with me and I'd be over something trivial and I'd be like what's really going on and it would go back to I asked you to do this uh, so you didn't ask me to do anything you told me your car was dirty. (laughs) If you wanted me to wash it, just say so. I'll be happy to. And I'm like, I have the total moral high ground in here. I thought I did. I learned I needed to be a little bit more intuitive. And she probably needed to be a little bit more direct. But that learning one another and modifying what we do is because of love. So, when we think about this fact that God is giving us, He's laying out here an opportunity for us to understand how to reflect Him and to love Him faithfully in the world. He starts out at the very beginning. It's sort of a, a resummarizing of what's been said with the nature of true religion. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked to you from heaven. In other words, with divine authority. This is not coming from earth up. This is from heaven down. Verse 23, there's a warning. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me. In other words, in addition to me. To sit beside me. Nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. This, this uh, reiteration of the command against idolatry. Exodus two twenty verses three and four. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. This is it. You shall have no other gods before me. Now Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said, If we really understand that verse, we don't even need the other commandments. Because everything is encapsulated in that. Luther said this Confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. In other words, whatever you put your confidence in, your hope in, your trust in, it's either rightly directed toward God or you have created some idol in the place of God. The key is having no other gods before the true and living God. Luther goes on to say this. Where the heart is rightly disposed toward God and this commandment to have no other gods before Him is observed, all others follow. So the key to live with God. Have no other gods before Him. Put Him first in the chief place. There is no other object worthy of worship than the glorious God who's revealed Himself to us in Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he also moves to the nature of true worship in verses 24 through 26. Look with me there. An altar of earth you shall make for me. Now, that sounds kind of odd, but what he's saying here is a humble altar. A, an, altar an altar made with objects that he's going to say later that is not hewn by you. It's, it's not ornate. It's not something that you're, you're building to be impressive in that way. An altar of earth you shall make for me and a sacrifice on it. Your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, here it is, I will come to you and bless you. His name will be remembered as the God who makes a way by sacrifice. Verse 25, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. That is, you don't make bricks and and you don't craft it in this way. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. This is what I am providing you. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be exposed on it. Now, these last couple of commands seem weird to us. But, but when we understand the context, it clarifies a little bit. It's very common in this, uh, the, the, the Canaanite culture that, that these altars would be elaborate and built to all of these false gods and again it plays into the idea of look at what we have done for god whatever they call the god look at what we've look at what we've done to appease this god and so he says wipe that out just gather the stuff around you of earth and make this altar because this is the sacrifice that i have provided for you and then the second part uh, the Canaanite religion often had all kinds of elements uh, in it that were sexual. In fact, a lot of the rites were performed in the nude, and a lot of sexual activity was, was embedded in Canaanite worship. And he says, uh, no to that too. So, no to this ornate thing as though you're doing something to impress God. And no to the ways that you profane the worship of God with this perverse sexuality. But the key is clear. God is to be the center of your life. He is to be the one that you look to in all things. This is why Proverbs, what the fear of the Lord, beginning with God, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of understanding. And it's also said the fear of the Lord is a fountain of joy. Starting with God, not with self. This is a summary of true religion. No idols. God and God alone. And God worshipped on His own terms, through sacrifice, through the shedding of blood. This is foundational to living with God. But he goes from living with God to walking with God. See, the idea is I come to God on His own terms. I look to no other God but Him. And I come to Him through the sacrifices that He has commanded, through shed blood... But we are to walk out our faith in this life. And we are to walk out our faith, not just as random individuals, but as a community of faith. And that's what we get in the next section, chapter 21, verse 1, all the way through chapter 23, verse 33. And we're just going to summarize and take a a big bird's eye view of this. Look with me, first of all, at verse 1. Now, these are the rules, are the judgments, are the ordinances, that you shall set before them. Now, we can stop right there. There are 42 of these rules or judgments or or ordinances. We we can call them case law. There's there's an if and this, and sometimes there's just a direct command. But there are 42. Now, these represent the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. You see, they they apply to real-life concrete situations. The Ten Commandments are foundational. They are true in all places at all times for all people. They tell about the character of God and how it is a people obey and honor God. But people live in times and places that he could do with what he wanted. But the Bible liberates women from the oppression that they faced all down through the ages. And so here, a man can commit adultery and he's accountable to God for it. But it also condemns sorcery, bestiality, idolatry, The mistreatment of the poor, the orphan, the immigrant, the widow, or any vulnerable person. You see this throughout chapter 22. Uh, Also, justice and responsibility are expected. You see this chapter 23, verses 1 through 9. In other words, a rescued people understand that others are to be treated in the way you would want to be treated. Finally, there's rest in worship as an ingrained pattern for this people's lives. Chapter 23, verses 10 through 19. A people who had no rest are now given rest. A rest of one in seven until the time where God comes and consummates His kingdom, where we live in forever rest that only God can provide. Now, do you see that? Treatment of the poor, stealing, Abuse, uh, the necessity of restitution, uh, rest and worship and justice and responsibility. You see, these descriptive laws, applying the prescriptive laws of the Ten Commandments that are foundational, are a way to live in the world differently than everyone else around. See, Israel was called to be a light to the nations. How are they to be a light to the nations? just because of what they say no though what they say is fundamentally and foundationally important but also by how they live it is to be obvious that this is a people who are a part of a kingdom that does not merely reflect the kingdoms of this world see the call law calls believers to start with him And that leads us to live and serve and love. What we do naturally is start with self and live to attain and get. And any religious system that is a way to climb to God is not an expression of a deity. It's an expression of the natural inclination of a person's heart. What can I do to get what I need? But this faith that we're called to, that we're taught about right here, is fundamentally unique. We say to the person who comes to us and says, how can I have what you have? Well, apart from God, I have nothing. So I'm starting in the same place you are. Let me tell you about what God has done and is doing. You see, even these case laws and commands in God's covenant are not without promises. Look at chapter 23, verse 20, embedded in the midst of all this. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I I have prepared. You see, they are not by obedience to these laws attaining from God. God has delivered them and God has promised them. And God says, I am keeping that promise. Then when you go down to chapter 23, verse 30, down through verse 33, little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness of the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of uh, of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Do you see these promises? I am doing this. This is what I am doing for you. We need to understand that the law itself is a blessing. It is a gift. It is a delight. It is a joy. You remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.8? Now we know that the law is good to the one who uses it lawfully. Now, if you are self-deceived thinking that the, you, you hear the law of God and you think, I can do that, yeah, let me start climbing. And you say to others, look at what I've done. I've gotten this far. Hey, this has delivered me. Maybe you can too. Then you are not using the law lawfully. Any honest examination of the human heart held up against the law of God says, God help me. For there is nothing I can do to fully obey what reflects your perfect character. And says, oh, Lord, save me. And the Lord saves. So he doesn't say, okay, now sweep the law out of the way. We say, okay, let me learn you so I can love you better. Think about the law in this way. It expresses the character and nature of God, the glory of God. Secondly, it leads to conviction of sin, which in the unbeliever puts them in a place of desperation, and they are to look to Christ. And for the believer, the conviction of sin means the ability to repent and the restoration of relationship. And it is a rule of life to reflect the glory of God in this world, and also to experience His blessings. His blessings are for His people, period, in the story. But our sin often keeps us from experiencing His blessings. See, it's very simple. To love God, we have to know God. And God has saved a people, and God has revealed Himself to a people. So our attempt to know God and reflect Him in the world reflects what it says in the New Testament. We love Him. Because he first loved us. And that's the only hope for everybody. But we want to end on chapter 24. And we're going to take a jet tour through chapter 24 this morning. And and it talks about communing with God. Communing with God. We we talked about living with God, walking with God, and now communing with God. What makes all of this possible? Look with me beginning in verse 1 and 2. Then he said to Moses, come up. By the way, God says to Moses, come up seven times. Probably that's purposeful to say that the covenant is ratified and with completion. Seven is often the number of completion. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord. You and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Okay, that is Moses, the covenant mediator, is called to come up. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu are leaders who will ultimately be the future priesthood. They are called to come up with Moses and then the 70 elders of Israel. In other words, representative of the entire nation of Israel and worship from afar. The idea is that the Lord or I am or Yahweh is here. Moses is invited up the highest. The uh, leaders who will be the future priesthood next. The 70 elders next. And then everyone else is forbidden from coming up the mountain. That's what it says in verse 2. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and the rules, and all the people answered with one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. By the way, that's a good sentiment. Now, it's getting harder and harder as this repeated revelations of God to understand how they how they can affirm this so wholeheartedly, but that's a good sentiment. Verse 4, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. By the way, that's not a throwaway here that this covenant is being ratified. God has spoken. The covenant mediator has heard. Writing down was essential for the covenant to be ratified or accepted. Verse 4, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar, as he was told in uh, chapter 20, verses 24 through 26, at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars, that is representing the whole nation, the twelve tribes, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young, sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings, those are atonement offerings, the whole offering would be consumed, and sacrificed peace offerings of the oxen. These are the offerings that, that, that signify the peace with God that comes from atonement. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Why did he do that? It represents that God has chosen to be here and present at the sacrificial altar. The blood thrown on the altar is to recognize the presence of God in the making of this covenant. This covenant will come by blood. Verse 7, Then he took the book of the covenant, which is the commands and all these laws, and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They might be getting a little carried away here now. Verse 8, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. That seems so weird to us, but it's not to them. The blood on the altar to represent the presence of God, and the people whom God has redeemed the blood on them to represent they are there by God's grace but they are making a covenantal commitment here and the blood is signifying the seriousness of the commitment and what makes this commitment possible Moses took the blood verse 8 and threw it on the people and said behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Now we know they didn't see his face because it's going to tell us no one can see his face and live, but they, they saw him. Whatever that means, they, they are in the presence of, they're invited in the presence of God. Why? Because of the blood. The covenant was sealed with blood, it was a bond in blood that symbolizes life and death. And God has delivered this people to life through the shedding of this blood. But it doesn't stop there. Look at how it continues, verse 10. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement or a floor of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, our purity. And get this, verse 11, this is where we've been building to. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people Israel. Now, if you think about all of the things that have been happening and all of the phenomenon that have been declaring that God is holy, that God is perfect, imagine being in this group that is invited in the very presence of God, and what do you have to be asking yourself? Will I die? The Lord did not Lay his hand on this people, and this people represents the people as a whole. But it doesn't just stop there. Look at what it says. Verse 11, the end. "They beheld God and ate and drank." Oh, well, this is the ratification of the covenant. God has summoned the people. God has spoken. It has been written down. It has been read in the hearing of the people. The people have said, yes, we will do these things. The blood was thrown on the altar. The blood was thrown on the people. And now they have come together to share a meal together. They eat in the very presence of God. Whatever this means, it is unbelievable that there are human beings by God's grace that have been invited into His presence who are there to eat with Him. This is a people who eats with God, who communes with God, who fellowships with God, whom God invites to His table. Why? They are His people. This is now a family meal. Hebrews 9, 18 through 28. Therefore, not even the first covenant, the one we've just been talking about, was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled With the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, this whole activity... Pointed ahead to what would fulfill it. Verse 24 For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are but copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you see it? He has done this for us. And where is all of this headed when those people are gathered who are eagerly waiting on him by faith through his shed blood? It is headed to what the book of Revelation tells us is a a gathering of joy like it has never existed in the history of the world. We call it the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will eat together. And until then, we eat together. See, the application of this sermon is built into this service. We come to the Lord's table today.